Aren't you glad that it is Christ who holds us fast for our security and not us that hold him fast? Do you believe that God has a plan for this entire universe and that he has the power to carry out his plan in its fullest? And maybe the next question would always be this, what we I do, but what to extent do I live like I actually do? Because that's where the rubber meets the road. I mean, when we look at life and we look at and evaluate everything that's happening in our world today, does it look like that God's in control? And is it possible to wonder and possibly even to doubt? Bible answer would be this. God doesn't have just a plan. Or one of many possible plans, God has the plan. And he has every power within him to work it out into all of its details according to his will. If this were not the case, there would be no confidence in what's going to happen in the future by prophecy. No confidence that the promises of God are something you can be secure in. So from God's perspective, he has this one plan and there is nothing that can thwart it. Job understood this in all of his trial and all of his difficulties. He makes this statement. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then you look at Israel in general and you go, I don't, I don't think they held that quite the same. They, they struggled in their belief and trust with God. In fact, Isaiah in chapter 46, he, he makes this statement to Israel that's struggling with idols. He says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith. And he makes it into a god, then they fall down and they worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. The thing they made and worshipped as a god is absolutely powerless. And yet they have the god of heaven that established him as his people. He goes on to say this in chapter 44. Back in chapter 4, he makes a statement like it. He said, The ironsmith makes a cutting tool, and he works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. He's, he's intense in his labor of what he's making. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes, and he marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. So all while he's doing this, he never stops to think who created the tree. Or who nourishes it with the rainwater so that it grows so it's there for him to cut down? Verse 15, he continues. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and he worships it. He makes it an idol and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. 
He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and he worships it. And he prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he shut their eyes. They cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say. And this should be common sense to the people of Israel. Half of it I burned in a fire, and I also baked on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? In other words, we'd say that's absurd. Why would anybody do that? And yet God calls Israel back to him again at the end of, or, or after his statement in Isaiah 46. He said, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Remember what I've done in the past. Remember how I led Israel out of Egypt. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. My my counsel, my purpose, my plan. It's settled forever. It shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. And then he goes on to give him an example. Calling out a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I'll bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And he's most likely talking about King Cyrus, whom God is going to use in great power and in judgment against Israel and other nations. And he's telling him ahead of time, I have set this in my purpose and counsel so you can be sure it's going to happen. We go to the New Testament. We, We find out that these actions of men, I mean, he actually, God actually prophesied what Cyrus would do. And the actions of men are also prophesied in the New Testament, happening, excuse me, happening in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Peter and John, if you remember, are arrested in Acts chapter 4 because they healed a crippled man and they're preaching the gospel. And when the elders and the chief priests let him out after they threatened him not to speak any more of Christ, they came to the Christians that were gathered and they began to explain to him everything that had happened. And here's the response of the people. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything therein, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And again, this this prophecy is drawn all the way into the present time that's happening here. For truly in the city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, excuse me, Herod, and Pontius Pilate, if you're, if you're a herald out there, I wasn't thinking about you. Herod, Pontius Pilate, <coughs> excuse me, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. I mean, from a human standpoint, those individuals, Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles that were there present, the Romans and others, 
the Israelites that are screaming, crucify him. They are all personally responsible for the actions that are being performed. And yet at the same time in verse 28, we we find God's viewpoint of what's happening in the whole situation. He says, all this happened to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And it boggles our mind. Years before, many, many years before, prophesied this would happen. People are acting of their own accord and responsible for their own actions, and yet we find out, too, that this is part and inside of God's plan and inside of his counsel. So we can be sure. and We can have full security in God's promises. There's no person, there's no heavenly body, there's no power anywhere that can thwart what God is putting into play. So I want to consider God's plan today for his universe and want to expand it in the next coming Sundays. Kind of want to look at it in these areas. Today, want to, with the time left, look at the end of God's plan. Because the end of God's plan is what will be. And that's what gives surety for the life that we live right now. I want to look at the beginning of God's plan at the garden and see its progression throughout all of history up to the point we live in. And I want to try and narrow it down to the role that the church plays in God's plan. The primacy, you might say, of the church, the centerpiece that God's put into the plan that you and I live in right now, the timing. And in it also, he gives a mandate to a church. And those mandate is given to individuals that we call disciples of Jesus Christ. I want to finally, in the end, narrow down to what did the New Testament Christian understand when they became a disciple of Jesus Christ? And put that into our time period too. Context for this morning, want, want to read, if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be reading 1 through 14, and we're just going to be looking at one phrase this morning. We, we won't go through the entire passage. Begins in verse 1 of chapter 1 saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to 
the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In this passage, Paul's telling us that, that God has overwhelmed us or lavished us with wisdom and insight into the mystery or, or that hidden truth that's in Christ. And he's now at this particular time as Paul is ministering, revealing it. And God has great pleasure in revealing his will. Some look at God as sometimes just making his will hidden and hard to find, and yet God puts it plain. And he writes it in a language that we can understand. And God fully intends the people of the world and us as individuals to know his will. And so what is the end goal of God's plan? Well, I think he tells us expressly in verse 10, and this is where we'll spend our time, to unite all things in Christ. Things that are in heaven and things that are in earth. All of them are going to be united in Jesus Christ. One commentator sums it up like this. Essentially then, God's blessed worthiness is affirmed on the grounds that he has shown us in Christ and in the church the beginnings of his master plan to restore the cosmos to himself and to the harmony lost through rebellion and consequence alienation. 1 Corinthians 15.28 kind of sums this up too. Makes a statement, Paul does, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, meaning Christ, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, God, that put all things under him, Jesus Christ, that God may be all in all. That's the end. And, and it's all over. Not, not that God stops and time stops, but his plan for the universe stops as you and I know it when all this comes about. And so God is in the process of putting everything in this universe underneath subjection to Jesus Christ. And it doesn't look like it's going so well right now when you look at the world around us. Who as the Son of God is going to eventually put everything that's in subjection to him and himself under the Father. And then everything's going to be complete. And this doesn't mean that God being all in all is that God will become everything that God can become now. Because God is already everything that God can become, or that he is. There is no improvement to God. There's nothing that can be added in that regard, so it can't, it can't mean that. It can't mean that his sovereignty will become supreme because whether it looks like it or not, he's still sovereign. And he's still supreme. All in all then gives the idea that God's authority or his supreme authority will become very visibly established. And the fact that everything is set underneath him in subjection and it's through Christ that this is going to happen. And then there'll be no more attacks on his character. There'll be no more rebellion from his people or his universe. Everything will be as it ought to be in that regard. 
And God's not surprised about who is the president of the United States or who will be the next president of the United States. And he's not surprised by the rulers all over this world. They're all sitting there reigning as part of his plan, even though we all take part in it with votes or however else establishments make their leaders. But I think what happens is, is sometimes when we look at the world around us and the Christian says our God is sovereign, it causes the outside world to look at God and begin to question his character or even his power. In fact, things like chaos and harmship, tragedies, national or nat- natural dis- disasters, like a tsunami taking out an entire island, or a mass killing, or if you read of a ruthless torture or killing of a defenseless child, what does it do inside of you? I mean, it makes the hair begin to raise. And the outside world says, where's God in all this? They begin to criticize his character. They make statements like this. If an all-powerful God can prevent chaos and catastrophe, and he doesn't, then is he really an all-powerful God? More, more so than that at this point, is he good? I mean, if God's able to stop evil, and he doesn't, is he a good God? And why do you serve him? And then, then on the flip part, if, if for some reason you concede that maybe God can't prevent it, then the next thing from them is, well, if God can't prevent this, then he's not really an all-powerful God, is he? I mean, you're caught in a, in a catch-22 as a Christian, tra- trying to answer these criticisms. In fact, here's a side note to it, too. They go beyond just that. And they begin to introduce things that are just of no, not, no, no sense at all. You could call them just nonsensical thinking. Things like this. Well, if you say your God can do anything, can he make a square triangle? And you know, there's no such thing as a square triangle. Well, don't say God can't make it, or now you're admitting his, his weakness. Or they'll say things like this. Can God make a rock so big that God can't lift it? And you're going, ah, let's see. And the answer is in Proverbs. You answer a fool according to how he's talking. So if they're going to talk in nonsense, you're allowed to talk in nonsense back. And if they ask you, can God make a rock so big that can't, God can't lift it, you can confidently say yes. And then he lifts it. And they go, you can't, that's nonsense. You can't, but that's how they're talking. So don't, don't get caught up in those types of of arguments. It's in God's plan that he can choose and allow things to happen. He can allow Adam and Eve to fall into sin. He can allow Satan, remember he had to have permission to attack Job and to desecrate his family and all that he owned. In the Old Testament, we see God actively bringing tragedy or actively bringing in judgment things to Israel because remember he had a covenant with them if you obey me I'll bless you if you disobey me then here is cursing and God actively brings those curses upon Israel because he's righteous and he's just and yet we find other verses in the Old Testament too 
that no matter what's happening in the world, you can't just put God off and apart from it. God is more than willing to take credit. He says in Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things and it's not anything that impugns upon his character. Amos 3, 6 says, Is a trumpet blown in a city? And the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? So God's saying, in his justice and in his righteousness, and often beyond our understanding to put together, God either allows or is doing everything that's coming or, or everything that is happening in this world. So when we look at that phrase, he's going to unite Regardless of what things look like right now, that is a sure thing. God will unite everything on heaven and earth. And this idea of unite is the idea of bringing something to its main point. Some translations would say summing all things up. That's opposed to the idea that it's not just being the head of something. It's coming to a final point. So everything on heaven and everything on earth, all of the creation is being brought together for a main point, for a final end. And they're going to be brought together under one thing we find, and that's subjection to Jesus Christ. Everything in heaven and earth is going to be subjected to him, and it's going to be in him. And in him doesn't mean so much that Christ is the tool Although God is using Christ. It's the idea that Christ is the main thing. It's in the realm of Christ or the the sphere of Christ. He, He becomes everything in this. And those verses that we read in in Ephesians, who has blessed us where or who in Christ? He chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in the beloved, which is Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption and sit here today saved from sins. Again, God is, or Christ is God's choice. He's the one whom all things are going to be summed up in, in the end. He's going to restore and bring back to harmony all of his creation that has been broken by the fall. And it's going to come through and in Christ. So he's more than just an instrument that God's using. He's not just one of the many that people would worship out there in whatever God they believe is moving the world. He's it. It's in him God's purposes is fulfilled. He's the focal point. And there's going to come a day when the entire world recognizes this. They may not not want to claim him as king. But this will one day at the end be recognized by the entire world. Heaven and in earth. Revelation 21 in verse 1 gives us quite a different picture of Christ than we see in the manger. Meek and lowly, humble coming as a servant of God to give his life for the salvation of all. Revelation 21, at the end, we see this in verse 1. 
John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, as this has always been intended by God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things are going to have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, because this is Christ now, makes this statement, Behold, I'm making all things new. I am bringing things back to their created order. And this is including all things in the earth. So, so here's the things that will be included when, when Christ does this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 through 22. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by, blood, by the blood of the cross. In other words, one of, the first, or one of the things that Christ is doing, he's reconciling all humans to God. Through his sacrifice on the cross, he brings peace or at least the offer of peace to all who accept. We know it's going to go beyond just bringing individuals to God through Christ. But he's going to unite all humans in the world in one way too. Ephesians 2.14 For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall. He's talking about the wall the the court of the Gentiles that was separated by a wall so they could not enter the courts of of the Israelite people. There was a distinction. And again, he's saying, I broke that down. I took away that wall that caused hostility between the Jew and between the Gentile by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The Old Testament law that was for the Jew has, has been abolished, it's been replaced by something new that's in Christ. We call it the New Testament. That he might create in himself one new man, or you could actually translate, he'll make one new race. I mean, the world is desperately trying to make this happen in all sorts of contorted ways. And yet it's only going to happen through Jesus Christ. There'll be one new man. One race called Christian. And we we are a living example or ought to be a living example of this now. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In him you also are being built together into the dwelling place of God. And we, we might look at this as the universal church at this point of all Christians that have been saved by Christ. But lastly, he brings into union the entire universe, everything that's been created. And this is the point where I was making a little bit later and got a little bit premature on it. 
In Philippians 2, 9, 11, he says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him, Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I saw an article that, in, in a, that I was reading. It had a picture of a guy who was protesting. I don't remember what he was protesting. But he carried around this big sign, and on his sign he made this statement. If Jesus returns, crucify him again. That's what we'll do. We'll crucify him again. And then you read verses like this that say, at the name of Jesus, every knee's going to bow. Revelation 19.11, this, this is the same Jesus that came humble and meek. He comes again in quite a different way. Then I saw heaven opened, Revelation 19, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule with them a rod of iron. And he'll tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings. Lord of lords. And again, it's going to be to the glory of God who submits everything to Christ that this is going to happen. And Christ in the end then submits himself to God. And order is restored. And rebellion is gone. And sin is no more. There's really only one application to the end of this from where we sit today. If everything is moving to Philippians chapter 2, all things are going to be underneath the subjection of Jesus Christ. It begs this question, to what extent are you and I living a life that represents God's plan for the whole universe? And the only answer that comes with that is to the extent that we are in subjection to Jesus Christ today. In fact, individual Christians are an infomercial to the world of what life would like or be like underneath the reign of Jesus Christ. Take it a step further, the corporate body of Christ that becomes visible in a local setting like it is here we call the local church. The extent to which we together are living a life in submission to Christ sends a message to the world what life will be like when Christ reigns. And the question we ask is, what does that message look like in any given church body? And what does that message look like in any individual Christian? Today we have opportunity to celebrate communion. Opportunity to remember the sacrifice that Christ made to bring us into his family because of the forgiveness of sins that can come with belief in him. 
And then when we go out the doors, that's where the rubber meets the road. And why can we live a life in subjection to Jesus Christ today and his word? Because we know the end. And it ought to provide strength, and it ought to provide encouragement, ought to provide desire to persevere, regardless of what's going on around us. So may God help us as we do that together as individuals and as we do it together as a church body. Lord God, we are thankful for what you did in sending your son. Lord, we are incredibly thankful that you didn't leave this world in a broken state because of Adam's sin. That you did not just turn your back on your creation But God, in your loving mercy and in your grace and in your plan, you sent Jesus Christ. I pray, dear God, that you may help us in all of our weakness and in all of our frailty to live out a life that is in subjection to him and his word. Lord, may you help us to humble ourselves because we don't do that so well on our own. I pray to God that you might help us to leave a testimony with those around us that might understand more fully what life is like under Christ and what life is like under surrender to God. Because truly, God, you are the only one that can satisfy. And we'll give you glory and we'll give you praise.